Well, good morning again. We are in First Kings. We've got three more weeks in our study of First Kings. We're going to be going through chapter 11, which pretty much covers the story of Solomon. And then we will be moving into First Timothy for a while. But go ahead and turn there with me to First Kings chapter 10. You know, chapter 10 is another one of those chapters that um, it's hard to know what the first half of the chapter has to do with the second half of the chapter. And so, for most of the, what we've done in First Kings so far, we've tried to handle about a chapter a week, but there's been some chapters where we've had to break them down just to do justice to the, the chapter, and so we've spread them out over multiple weeks. And I'm going to do that with First Kings chapter 10 here, because in some respects, the first 13 verses or so are very different from the remaining verses, and it would be hard to sort of package and present them together. Plus, it's not real clear as to why maybe um, the author did what he did here. The first 13 verses deal with a visit from the, from the Queen of Sheba. You guys are familiar probably with that story to some degree. And then the rest of the verses, um, in many respects, just deal with sort of the greatness of Solomon. And so if I could find a similarity between the two, it might be that the first 13 verses or so, the um, Queen of Sheba, you might, Sheba, you might um, sort of label that as the testimony of the Queen of Sheba, and then the second half we might label the testimony of Solomon's greatness, because they both reflect God's work and uh, using Solomon in the way that he did. And so maybe that's what ties these two together, these two sections. Maybe that's why the author did what he did. So we're going to look at the testimony of the Queen of Sheba today, and then we're going to look at the testimony of Solomon's greatness and what that reveals to us next week. And then the final week will be chapter 11 that we'll cover uh, three weeks from now. So let's go ahead and look at this. Let's look at the first three verses or so. The Queen of Sheba actually comes to Solomon to confirm what she's heard about him. Look at verses 1 through 3 in chapter 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with different questions. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue and with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explain to her. So who is this queen of Sheba? She's only mentioned here and then she's mentioned one other time and it's by Jesus in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11. In fact, in those Gospels it refers to her as the queen of the south. It doesn't mention her by name, but it's pretty clear that Jesus is talking about the queen of Sheba here. So the queen of Sheba here in 1 Kings 10 And then the Queen of the South in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke 11 is the same individual. Now almost nothing is known about her except for the fact that she was a Gentile queen from a fairly wealthy kingdom. It's believed that Sheba was probably um, somewhere in southern Arabia because we don't even, very little is known about Sheba. Um, In one of the Psalms, in fact I was reading in one of the Psalms this morning, had no idea, um, I just sort of came across it, that mentions Sheba and a place called Saba and many believe that those two are closely related and so some people think that maybe Sheba is this place known as Saba which is in southern Arabia and that's 
probably true based on what we understand here, but almost nothing is known of that area. It's just known that it was a fairly wealthy kingdom. They were known for their spices and and other things, and we see that here. They were also known for gold. In fact, back in 2012, a gold mine was found in that area, a fairly significant gold mine, and so it's believed that that might be where the Queen of Sheba got her wealth from. And we see that in the text today. It says that... She traveled from that region, if you will. She brought all kinds of spices with her. um, Brought gold as well, wealth. Gave all of that to Solomon. So if indeed this is where she's from, it means she would have traveled about 1,200 to 1,500 miles, which by what we know of travel in the ancient Near East, it would have taken her maybe about three months to make that trip. So this was a fairly significant event for her. She came a long distance Spent a a lot of time. And if you can think about this for just a moment, you know, for us, we sort of, you know, we go up to Green Bay every summer and then every other Christmas. We load up the van. It takes us anywhere from 10 to 12 hours to get there. We pack the van full of stuff. You know, we're able to stop along the way and eat lunch and maybe dinner and that. It wasn't that way in the ancient Near East. And if you can imagine the amount of wealth that we'll see here in a bit that she brings with her, this was a giant caravan And so it was hard to move something like that from one place to another, and so it would have taken a significant amount of time. And so this was a fairly significant investment of time and energy and resources for her to do this. And it says that she did this ultimately because she had heard about the fame of Solomon. Now, more literally, the text said she had heard a report about Solomon. The translators translated as heard about the fame of simply because... You don't simply go because you hear a report. He was a famous individual, and so they translate it that way. But basically, she had heard a report about Solomon, and so she came to investigate that. Based on the context, there are three things that she had apparently heard in this report about Solomon. She heard about his wisdom. She heard about his prosperity. And then more importantly, though, it says that she heard about the connection of Solomon and those things to the name of Yahweh. You go back to verse 1, you'll see that. Now when, it, now when the queen of Sheba had heard about the fame of Solomon, or heard this report of Solomon, concerning the name of the Lord. That's the most important part of this verse. Because Solomon's fame, Solomon's fortune, his prosperity, his power, and everything else associated with the kingdom of Israel was tied to the name Yahweh. People knew that. And so... The author here makes sure that he points out that she was coming in part because she heard of his connection to Yahweh. Back in chapter 4, verse 34, and then even in chapter 10, verse 24, we hear that, we see that all of the nations had heard about this. From thousands of miles away, Gentile kings and kingdoms had heard about Solomon's prosperity, his wealth, and the association to this God named Yahweh. Apparently, as word spread about Solomon's wisdom and prosperity, so did wisdom and understanding of who Yahweh was. Now, this is precisely what we would expect, because again, twice in the text it tells us that from people from all over the nations, all over the world, had heard about this, But go back to chapter 8, verse 41, just briefly here. This is actually what Solomon prayed for. Chapter 8, verse 41. 
This is Solomon when he's dedicating the temple and he's praying. He says, also concerning the foreigner who is not of your people Israel. When he comes from a far country, and look at this, for your name's sake. Meaning that foreigners would come to Jerusalem, not just to see Solomon, but would come because they had heard of Yahweh's name. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and all of your outstretched arm when he comes and he prays towards us. In other words, foreigners would come to seek out Yahweh because of what they had heard. Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all of what the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as you do your people Israel or as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. Solomon prays that all of the nations around them would know not just about his prosperity. Notice he doesn't mention that here. Lord, may they all know about how awesome I am and how great I am and about my wealth and his great... No, it's that they might know your name, your power, what you've done. That's the prayer that Solomon prays. Look at uh, verses 59 and 60 of the same chapter. And may these words of mine which with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires. And then here's why. So that the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. So Solomon's prayer was that what God did for him and did for Israel would ultimately be a heralding call to the rest of the world, that all of the world would know about Yahweh, and that he is the one true God. And so Queen of Sheba here, hears about this, just as Solomon had prayed, and what does she do? She comes and she seeks it out, and she wants to know if the things that she had heard, the things that had been presented to her, and whatever report it was that came to her, she came to see if those things were true. And so she travels some 1,200 miles or so, and presents some difficult questions to Solomon. She arrives with this large caravan of gifts, spices, gold, precious stones, and then she proceeds, it says, to speak to him about all that was in her heart. I love that phrase. All that was in her heart. She had a desire to know, to seek out, to find out whether these things were true. Now, not surprisingly, it tells us in verse 3 that Solomon answered all of her questions. It says, nothing was hidden from the king which he did not explained to her. So he was able to answer every question she had. She passed every test that or he passed every test that she presented before him. Nothing was hidden. There's not a single question he couldn't answer. Just an example of his wisdom and we know from what we see in the rest of this the uh, book of First Kings here, his wisdom wasn't just spiritual matters. It was academics. He was a scholar. He taught all kinds of subjects. People came from all over the world to sit under his tutelage. And so as she does this, and she, I'll say, pesters him with, with these questions and these tests, he's able to answer every single thing that she throws his way. And so the first thing we see about the Queen of Sheba here is that she comes seeking answers to what she had heard to see if what she had heard was true. She seeks that out. Next thing that happens here is she actually confesses the truth about Solomon's wisdom and prosperity. Look at verses 4 through 8, chapter 10. 
When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters in their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of it was not told to me. You exceeded in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men. How blessed are those of your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great amount of spices and precious stones. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave King Solomon. So clearly, King Solomon had passed the test. After witnessing his wisdom and prosperity, the queen confesses that everything she heard was true about Solomon. She says, I didn't believe it at first. Why? Because, think about it. You know, in in this particular time in the ancient Near East, there was no kingdom like Israel. They dominated the entire region. There was no man like Solomon. There was no king like Solomon that had the wealth and the prosperity that he had. And the thought that one God, Yahweh, might have caused all of this to exist. Unparalleled in the ancient Near East. And so she didn't believe it. Every nation had their God. Every nation had their things, you know. And so she didn't believe it. And so when she comes to Solomon to test this out herself, the text actually says that it left her breathless. You know what that is. Your breath is just taken away by what you see. It says there was no more spirit. That's the word for breath. There was no more breath in her. She was blown away by the things that she had seen. Again, she confessed that I didn't believe it until I saw it with my own eyes. But she goes beyond that. She says that it actually, verse 7 there, I didn't believe the reports until I came and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of it, the half of it was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. Not only did she come and go, oh yeah, I guess it was all true. It was way beyond what she had heard. Something that she likely could never have imagined. I was sharing with Dustin, and we were just chit-chatting a little bit earlier here. Um, Regardless of what we see happening with Disney today, and everything from their woke agenda to skyrocketing prices in the park now, where the average middle-income family can barely even attend, um, we went to Disney, we've been to Disney three times. And uh, the first time we went, somebody actually paid for it. They gave us a gift, in part to bless my family because of the teaching over the years that um, I had done. And so it was a tremendous blessing. I had no desire to go to Disney. I wasn't a Disney fan. I wasn't anti-Disney, but, you know, I never really got into the Disney movies and stuff, you know. But Amy wanted to go. A lot of our friends raved about it, you know. And so somebody offered a trip to us. So I took it. And I'll be real honest. And my wife wife will say, I became a fan at that time. 
I was blown away because of everything everybody had said. My brother had been there, and I had been there when I was a freshman, or I mean, I'm sorry, I I think I was a junior in college for part of the day I went to Magic Kingdom with some of my college buddies. Very different Disney at that time. But my point is that, so we went down there, and I, I was blown away. Everything that I had been told about Disney or heard about Disney was the half of it. I mean, everything down to how friendly everybody was. I don't think we saw anybody that wasn't elated or that was not elated at that park. From the customers to all the, everywhere we went, everyone we talked with, it was almost like they were all drinking Kool-Aid. It was spiked with something because they were just, everyone was happy. Right down to the guys that were sitting at the gate that would check our bags for, you know, weapons, were just like, hey, good morning, how are you? And we were like, is anybody not happy here? Um... Everything that we did, they were gracious and kind, and the park was spotless. I don't think I saw as much as a scrap piece of paper anywhere in that park. It was spotless everywhere we went. Um, I had some special dietary needs, and um, so they had told us, just when you make the reservations for your meals, put that in there. The chefs were coming out to talk to us at the table and treated us like royalty. We had one place, we went, I think it was, was it Animal Kingdom or something, Amy, where this guy goes, I got all this special stuff, and he started making us all this special stuff and bringing it out, and we were like, we don't need all this. But he was just, you could tell this guy was loving serving our needs. And I don't want to oversell it here, but I walked away kind of going, wow, that was way beyond anything I've ever heard from anybody. And had I not seen it with my own eyes. And I enjoyed it so much that we went back a couple of years later. And we had another great experience. And a year later, Amy and I chose to do that for our 20th wedding anniversary. And the same thing, had this amazing experience. Now, like I said, we're a little frustration right now and the price changes and we're not thrilled. We don't know if we'll ever be back at Disney at any point. Um... But my point of bringing that example up is it was one of those times where had I not seen it with my own eyes, I might not have believed that it was as awesome as it actually was for us. And it truly was, out of all the things we've done in our lives, probably one of my favorite vacations, especially the first time. Because I was just caught off guard. I did not expect it to be as perfect a vacation as it actually was. And in many respects, that's what happened to the queen here. As she arrives, it just blew her mind. It took her breath away to see all that she had seen. Now, what's interesting about this is, as she's praising Solomon for his wisdom, she goes beyond that and she now praises the Lord because she recognizes what's behind all of this. Remember, it says up in verse 1 that she had heard about this report of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. And now we see her reflect on that, on Yahweh. It wasn't enough for her to just confess the truth about Solomon's wisdom and his prosperity or to exclaim how awesome it was for his servants. Because what she experienced caused her to actually go on and praise the Lord. Go back to verse 9. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of gold and a great amount of spices and precious stones, never again, and you know the rest there. 
This praise was the result of her recognizing three things that she had seen. The first thing is that she recognized that the Lord's, or she recognized the Lord's role in making Solomon king. She refers to the Lord making him um, king two times in this passage here. She even says that the Lord delighted in making him king. That's a very emotional word, and it means that God took and found an amazing amount of pleasure in making Solomon king. And she recognized that. Says that the Lord delighted. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. She recognized that it was the Lord's work that had placed Solomon and that the Lord was pleased in doing that. She recognized that the Lord did this because he loved Israel. That's the second thing she recognizes. It appears that she even recognized the long-term nature of his love for Israel. If you look at the second part of that, he delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Why? Because the Lord loved Israel forever. A couple of different ways that's translated in the English translations. One of them is the Lord loved Israel forever. The other one is the Lord's eternal love for Israel. It doesn't really matter what it is. It's just that she recognized the eternal nature of God's relationship and love for Israel. Interesting how she might see that in all of this. The third final thing she recognized here was the purpose of Solomon's reign. Read on. Therefore, because God loved the Lord, because of his eternal love for Israel, therefore, he made you king. Why? To do justice and righteousness. Interesting how she might pick that up. Remember, this is a Gentile queen. This is not a Jewish queen. But she recognizes that the Lord had placed Solomon on the throne not just because he loved Israel, but because he wanted to do justice and righteousness. Those are two very Jewish things. To do justice and righteousness for Israel. This refers to how the king is to lead. And it's similar to what we hear about King David. Second Samuel chapter 8, verse 15 says this. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered what? Justice and righteousness for all the people. That's why God put him on the throne. We get a great picture of what this would look like from something Solomon actually wrote. Look at Psalm chapter 72. This is a lengthy psalm, but I want to read it to you. Because again, this is... They believe this is written by Solomon. The, the postscript, what we find at the beginning of this psalm, is not inspired. It's, it was added at some point by scribes. But I think we could probably trust it. The scribes were pretty good at identifying which psalms were written by which individuals. But listen to what Solomon wrote in Psalm chapter 72. Give the king your judgments, O God, and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he, the king, vindicate the affliction or the afflicted of the people. Save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Let them fear you while the sun endures and as long as the, na- and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he, the king, come down like rain upon um, the mown grass like showers that water the earth, in his days may the righteous flourish an abundance of peace till the moon is no more. 
May he, the king, rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick their dust. Or lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all the kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy and when he cries for help, the afflicted also and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him, and let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all day long. That's what the king is supposed to be like. That was Solomon's function. And what's interesting about this is as the queen comes... She sees all of this, she hears this report, she sees all of this wealth when she gets there, everything is confirmed, it's way beyond anything she could imagine, and it's interesting how she goes from looking at Solomon and going, wow, look at what God has done with you, how she ties that directly to God's purpose for placing him on the throne, and that it's supposed to be for the purpose of doing righteousness and justice for all of Israel. Isn't it interesting how she would make that connection? This was a bright woman. Again, we go back to verse 1 and we see that she heard this report and she heard it concerning the name of the Lord Yahweh. Now this is the second Gentile we see in this book who praises the Lord for placing Solomon on the throne. Do you remember who the other one was? It was Hiram, the guy that built the temple and the palace. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 2. Second Chronicles chapter 2, I believe it's verse 11. Yeah. Now Hiram, or Hiram, king of Tyre, answered in a letter to Solomon, because the Lord loves his people. Interesting how he says that as well. Because the Lord loves his people, just like the queen of Sheba said, he has made you king over them. Then Hiram continued, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, endowed with discretion and understanding, who will build a house for the Lord and a royal place for himself. So we have these two Gentiles, one from the land of Tyre, which was a very pagan nation, another one, Queen of Sheba, which was another pagan nation. Two of these Gentiles are here praising the Lord for his love for Israel and placing Solomon on the throne. And in the case of Sheba, Queen of Sheba, specifically mentioning his purpose for being there, which was to do righteousness and justice for all of Israel. Now, I would imagine that they probably weren't the only two that had praised the Lord for this, because again, we're told that kings and royalty from other nations, men from other nations, had traveled thousands of miles to come and hear Solomon speak and to see this man Solomon. So I would imagine that we have just a sampling here of the Gentiles that had praised Yahweh for what he had done with Solomon and what he had done for Israel. We're not told that specifically, but it just makes sense, does it not? Since we're told that they had come from all over the world, we would expect probably the very same thing that we see with Sheba or the Queen of Sheba here and Hiram. That takes us to the last verse of our passage this morning where the Queen of Sheba returns home. 
with both spiritual wisdom and earthly gifts from Solomon. Look at verse 13. Oops, let me turn and make sure I'm in the right passage here. We'll read verse 11 through 13. Also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold of Ophir, brought in from Ophir a great number of Almug trees and precious stones. The king made of the Almug tree or Almug, Almug trees supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house. Also lyres and harps for the singers. Such Almug trees have not come again, nor have they been seen to this day. Why he throws that in there, I'm not really sure. But he gets back to the queen of Sheba here in verse 13. King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire which she requested besides what he gave her according to his royal bounty. Then she turned and went to her own land together with her servants. According to this verse, the queen returned home with everything it says that she desired and requested of Solomon. Plus, in addition to that, some personal gifts. Now, likely what took place here was, like many of the nations around them, they would come and they would bring their gifts and offerings and stuff to Solomon, but they would also, many times, were interested in trade agreements and other things. I mean, that just makes sense. You know, Solomon and Israel, the big, big kids on the block, had a lot to offer, and so entering into a trade agreement. And so there may have been some of that with the queen presenting him with all of these gifts, showing what she could provide with the precious stones and other things. And so she might have had some requests for Solomon, And so he gave her those things, but he even went above and beyond that. He must have been fairly impressed with her because it says that he actually gave from his royal bounty, it's more literally the hand of King Solomon, which means he took some of his own personal wealth and gave her gifts from that. So it was not just probably some trade arrangements made between, hey, she gave him gold and stuff, and so he returned some of Israel's wealth to her, maybe in a good gesture, some type of a new arrangement maybe for trade. But he even took from his own personal personal hand, his own wealth, if you will, and gave her gifts from that as well. So we know that she returned back to her land um, impressed with what she had learned, with an understanding that God was behind what was happening in Jerusalem. But she also returned with some material things. Now you'll notice, as I described this section, I said that the queen returned home with both spiritual wisdom and earthly gifts. Where do I get that she returned home with some type of spiritual wisdom? Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus mentions the Queen of Sheba here in a rather interesting context. It tells us something probably about her spiritual state. Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and he said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And just as Jonah was there three days and nights in the belly of the sea, sea monster, 
So will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South, that's the Queen of Sheba, will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, did you catch that? When the scribes and the Pharisees demanded this sign of Jesus, he refused and he rebuked them for their unbelief. He told them that the only sign they're going to receive would be the sign of Jonah the prophet, which was a reference to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But he also says that both Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, and the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, would stand up at the final judgment and condemn that generation. In order for the people of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba to stand in judgment and condemn that generation means that they were on the right side of judgment, does it not? Which means that the queen of Sheba returned home on the right side of judgment. I don't find that shocking. She came because of the report she had heard concerning the name of Yahweh. There is a spiritual interest in the Queen of Sheba. She didn't just come to see the spectacle of Solomon. She came concerning the name of Yahweh. She praised the Lord Yahweh because of what he did. She recognized that he loved Israel, that he he placed um, Solomon on the throne, and did it because Solomon was to be a man of justice and righteousness. The fact that Jesus says that she will be standing at the judgment to condemn that generation tells me that she understood salvation. I believe that's the only way to interpret that. And so when the queen of Sheba went home, she took with her not just material blessings and material gifts, she took back with her spiritual wisdom and understanding enough to save her. I think that's the way we should understand it. So what do we do with all this? What I found interesting about this is we could just interpret it as a historical event. This is kind of cool. This queen comes from a faraway nation with these great reports. Everything is satisfied. She goes home happy. That's one way for us to interpret this, but I found it rather interesting that the passage as it's laid out, in many respects, illustrates the gospel and how it oftentimes is laid out and responded as well. And so I'm going to give you four points here that I think we can draw from this. The first is this, salvation requires that we be willing to seek out and confirm the truth that we heard about God and his word. Isn't that how salvation starts? We have to seek out and question whether what we've heard is really true. I remember when I was brought to Christ. I was raised Catholic. I understood you know, who Jesus was and who God was. And I had heard about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I didn't understand the need to make that personal and for me to be born again. And so the first time that somebody shared that with me, I had to consider it and think about it. And I went home and I prayed about it that night. And as I thought about it, it made sense. And that's how I made my profession of faith. I had to seek out, and I probably for the first, or for the six months to a year prior to me accepting Christ, I would go out and I would pray and walk the streets sometimes at three o'clock in the morning begging God to help. 
I was seeking something. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it had to do with God, and I desperate. I was desperate for Him to help, and He did. And so, salvation requires that we be willing to seek out and confirm the truth, just as the Queen of Sheba did. She didn't just sit back in Sheba. She traveled twelve to fifteen hundred miles to get an answer. And I believe one of the things she was seeking for was, who is this God, Yahweh? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks, receives. He who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, what? It will be opened. We saw a great example of this in the book of Acts when the Jews of Thessalonica and Berea, you remember what happened? The Thessalonians became violent when Paul preached the gospel, but the Bereans, were told, were more noble. Why? They went back and they searched the scriptures to hear or to see if what they heard was true. They sought to find out the truth. And when they did, they rejoiced. It was their willingness to seek the truth that led to their salvation. I believe that was the case with Queen of Sheba here. It was her willingness to seek out the truth that ultimately led to her being able to stand on the right side of judgment. Second, salvation requires confession of the truth. Just as the Queen of Sheba confessed that all she had heard about Solomon and the Lord was true. So salvation requires a confession of that truth. Not just hearing it, not just saying, yeah, it's true, but now confessing it. According to Jesus, we have to, and this is from Luke chapter 12, We have to confess him. Notice what he says. And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess before the angels of God. Paul wrote, Romans chapter 10, yeah, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, get that? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness, but with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So salvation requires a confession of the truth. That's exactly what we see in the Queen of Sheba. She didn't just praise Solomon for his wealth and his prosperity and his wisdom. She went on to praise and to confess that the Lord loved Israel and was obviously interested in righteousness and judgment because of placing Solomon on the throne. Third thing about salvation, we see this with the Queen of Sheba as well, the third thing is that salvation results in the praise of the Lord. We see her do that as well. She praised him for his eternal love for Israel. Three times in the opening verses of the letter of Ephesians, Paul ties our salvation to the praise of God's glory. That is a natural thing that happens when we confess as we go immediately into praising the Lord for that salvation. I'm going to just quote a couple passages from Ephesians here. Ephesians chapter 1. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. But then get this. So the praise of the glory of his, or I'm sorry, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So Paul says right in the beginning, the first few verses of the book of Ephesians, that our salvation leads to the praise of God's glory and grace. 
He goes on in verses 11 and 12 and he says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things according to his counsel, of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ, what would be to the praise of his glory. Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him in the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, and here it is, to the praise of his glory. Throughout chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul says that our salvation is tied to the praise of God's glory. And he does that over and over and over. And you know what? When we look at the Queen of Sheba, what does she do? After seeking out an answer, after she confesses the truth of what she's seen, she goes on and then she immediately begins to praise the Lord. That's the way salvation works. That's the gospel. Fourth and finally, salvation satisfies our deepest need and desire. You notice that that's what happened with the Queen of Sheba? She went home satisfied. Not only materially, but obviously spiritually as well because of what Jesus tells us. And that's what the gospel does. It satisfies our deepest need and our deepest desires. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? They'll be satisfied. John chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus tells the woman at the well, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give, they'll never thirst. Why? They'll be satisfied. But the water that I will give him will be like a well of water springing up to eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And she who believes in me will never thirst. Why? They'll be satisfied. A little bit later on in John chapter thirty or John chapter six, I think it's verse fifty-eight. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Why? Because the gospel satisfies. We see that in the Queen of Sheba, and so we see these four different things here as we look at what this story ultimately is about. You know, it's interesting when we hear. Certain individuals say we should decouple or disengage from the Old Testament or how the Old Testament doesn't have much value for Christians or that the Old Testament doesn't really prophesy Jesus Christ or that you can't find the gospel in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is really a, a God of judgment and it's really the God of grace that we see show up in the New Testament. You know, And that is a bunch of hooey. We see presented right here in these 13 verses with the Queen of Sheba, we see how the gospel is embedded right there in the Old Testament. I think we have to see that. And so we can see through this story these four important aspects of the gospel that we have to seek out the truth. We have to be willing to confess that truth. We have to be willing to praise the Lord for the salvation that comes through that truth and then ultimately, lastly, recognize that the gospel satisfies our longings and satisfies our deepest desires, which is ultimately to know the God who created us. Isn't that a powerful thing? 
Man, I love the Old Testament, folks. Because we can see Christ just embedded in it. That's why it's two-thirds of our book. Praise God for that, right?